Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. And bienvenidos, bitches, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about serial killers of color and the victims. However, we are on a break for the holidays, and in the meantime, we wanted to give you something new for your ear holes. <laughs> and we are honored to share an episode with you from the podcast Impact of Influence called The Mind Hunter Who Studied Charlotte Strangler Speaks. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Henry Lewis Wallace, who we covered back in 2019, he's also known as the Charlotte Strangler, and he killed 11 black women in South Carolina and North Carolina from March 1990 to March 1994. Ann Burgess interviewed Wallace and testified at his trial. Anne was a pioneer in the study of serial killers, and the Netflix series Mindhunter based the character of Dr. Wendy Carr on Anne Burgess. No way! Oh my yeah. gosh! This yeah. is amazing! So, right. Anne Burgess is really interesting, and yeah. we are sure that you will enjoy this episode. In the meantime, you can reach us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com, and we'll be back with a new episode for you all in February. Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here. Always grateful that you are spending time with us. It means a lot. We love to hear your comments, good or bad, and just try to get better. How they find us. You can find us on our Facebook page, which is Impact of Influence. And this is an amazing interview we have coming up from the woman who the character on Mindhunters on Netflix was based on. And the reason we're doing this subject, which is 
Charlotte Strangler or the Taco Bell Strangler, multiple names, Henry Lewis Wallace, killed 11 women before being arrested in March 1994. This subject and his name came up in uh, the podcast we do with Michael DeWitt called The Wicked South because when Murdoch, one of the many Murdochs, was a solicitor in Low Country, Henry Lewis Wallace came across his desk as attempted rape, and Murdoch decided he should be in a first-time offenders program, but then he ended up just letting him go. And that's when things went haywire when he moved to Rock Hill and Charlotte. Well, he was supposed to have probation, and he wasn't complicit with that. Right, right. So it, it, that's why it came up, and you can check out that Wicked South podcast episode to find out the particulars on that. But Henry Lewis Wallace was a serial killer. He, on March 8th, 1990, he murdered Tashonda Bethea, an 18-year-old high school student in Barnwell, South Carolina, which is the killer's hometown, which is just stone's throw from Hampton and Walterboro and all that. Her body was found floating in a pond on April 1st, and Wallace was questioned, but not charged. And it's the same time that the rape charge came up. And so then in November of 91, Wallace moved to Charlotte, started working in fast food restaurants, and well, continued his killing spree. In 92, he, he used a rock to kill Sharon Nance. So that was his second one. But that's the, it all started going after that. 11 women arrested in 94. So it was a 91 to... 94 spree of really horrible, horrible crimes, rapes and strangulation. Uh, all of them were strangled. And some of them were stabbed. Uh, there was an infant involved in one of the cases, and we will go through that whole timeline in another episode. But the important thing is that he killed all these women, received nine death sentences. Again, he confessed to them. Uh, he is on death row in central prison in Raleigh, and he'll be there for the rest of his life until, unless he uh, ends up getting the death penalty, which would probably not happen in North Carolina. So he's been in for 26 years so far. So that brings us to our guest, who is Ann Wilbert Burgess. She's an icon. She is a nursing professor at the William F. Cornell School of Nursing in Boston College. And she pioneered assessing and treating trauma and rape victims. Plus, if you watch the show Mind Hunters on Netflix, the character in there is modeled after her because she consulted with John Douglas and Robert Ressler and other FBI agents in their behavioral science unit and developed the modern profiling for serial killers. And she was named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing. And that brings us to our guest, Ann Burgess. First of all, Ann, you are a legend and uh, a hero, and it is so exciting for us to uh, chat with you. Uh, do you look at yourself as a hero? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good heavens, no. <laughs> the, the way you change the way law enforcement and others and victims of sexual assault and, and and violent sexual crimes, you change the whole way people look at that. Now, it's not 100%. There's still a, 
blame the victim mentality. But when you started in the 70s, if I have this right, you're one of the first people to dive into what was going on with the victim, what kind of person was committing the crimes. Am I correct? You're absolutely correct. Right. And the literature, there were only, I think, a handful of what we would call just anecdotal comments on the rape victim. There was a lot in criminology on the offender, but nothing on the victim. When we st- when Linda and I started, my, my co-author was Linda Holmstrom. I wanted to ask you, one thing I had noticed when I was reading your book was that you had young children at the time you were really doing all this and you were jetting off to Quantico. And how did you separate the really dark stuff you were dealing with from your home life? Well, in nursing, you're really taught that. There's a lot of dark side, if you will, in nursing, uh, taking care of patients that have awful diseases and things like that. So we really learned that early on as an undergraduate. And I think that the ability to separate, keep separate, was instilled in me. And we never took things home. We didn't talk about things at home. The kids didn't even know necessarily what we were doing or what I was doing. And most of the time I was going out at night, don't forget, to go into a meet with victims. They would come in in the middle of the night. So I didn't miss, they rarely would realize I had been gone in the (laughs) middle of the night. So from that standpoint, I, I kept everything as much separate as I could. Well, tell us a little bit about your background as a nurse and how this all evolved. I come from a a strong medical and nursing family, so it was rather normal or natural that I would go into nursing. And I I always liked it, and they had a program at Boston University, and I entered it, and I really enjoyed it, learned a lot, and had a wonderful psychiatric nursing instructor who on my evaluation, said, you really should go into psych nursing. And she probably said that to everybody. <laughs> I, I said, oh, she thinks I'm, I'm good in psych. I guess I'll have to go into that. So, and I did. And she later became very, very important to me because she was the one nurse who, by the time I had uh, finished my doctorate and was over at Boston College, had was the uh, nursing director at Boston City Hospital. And she was the one that said, yes, you can come over and see victims here. She said, I know a lot come in and I know that you'll be you'll be good with them. And she really paved the way for me. So number one lesson I always say is you need to keep in good contact with your not only your Mm -hmm. instructors in whatever program, but your peers and your your uh, classmates. Now, from there, you end up working with the FBI for those who have seen the show Mindhunter on Netflix. It's a great series. A version of you is prominently in this show uh, because you teamed up with the FBI. And prior to this, there really wasn't this idea of a profile, nor was there the term serial killer. Well, Bob Ressler came up with the term of serial killer because he used to go to the movies on Saturday. Each week they had a different program, I guess, on uh, on whatever. And so he came up with serial killer and everybody thought it was like cereal you eat. (laughs) (laughs) So he had trouble getting that across. But um, I was in, no, I was invited down to do a lecture on rape victims because that was a new priority for the 
FBI uh, at the academy. They were uh, the teaching end, if you will, of the FBI. And they had a new in, uh, director, William Webster, who was very front speaking, I guess you would say. And he wanted the agents to do research. He says, other institutions do it. You've got to do it. So while I was down there, I was I was invited down by Roy Hazelwood, who had the assignment of teaching rape investigation. And in the process, he had some research ideas. So I worked with him. And that's where I met Bob Ressler. And Bob was interested in talking, interviewing uh, killers. Now, he had to interview at the time, he interviewed assassins. Squeaky Crom was one, Fromm was one, and uh, Charlie Manson. But he was also teaching criminology, and he says, I can't teach it if I don't talk with some of these offenders. So he was spending some of his time going into the prisons and talking with serial killers. Uh, he wanted to study it, and that's how we matched up to develop the methodology that they could uh, look at the 36, identified 36 killers. And that was the basis for actually what turned out to be Mindhunter. John Douglas had joined with Ressler. And the cases were all cases that we had done research on. What I'm struck by when I'm reading A Killer by Design, your book, is the amount of points that you had to enter and this is before computers so right i, I mean i can only imagine how overwhelming and paperwork heavy that had to be it had to be boxes and boxes right it was it was because the the interview itself or the background was 57 pages and we color coded it so the agents could um look at the various ones some was on crimes the background on the crime, some was on the offender, some was on the, well, obviously had two sections on the victim and then the whole section on demographics. So all of that, yes, you're right. It had to be entered into, at that time we did have a computer, but it was all hand entering. I was shocked by the first kind of case you talk about in your book about this paper boy who goes missing and the profile that you created turned out to almost be spot on. That's right. That was Ressler's. Uh, he was so good. Ressler was really the um, key person that, because he had interned, if you will, with two other FBI agents that had started at Howard Teton and Patrick Mullaney. Four o'clock in the afternoon, they'd sit in their office and agents would come by and talk about their cases. And in the process, they started a very informal way of profiling. And when I heard what they were doing, I said to Bob, I said, you really need to document this because I think you're really on to something. It was crime scene uh, analysis that was very different from what other people were doing on more psychological profiling. So that's how we we really had two goals with the project. One was to interview and get all the data on the 36 serial killers. And the second one was to document how they were profiling. We did the first book, that was Sexual Homicide, that came out in the 80s, but we never got around to doing the profiling because the agents might have retired, they would go on to other parts of their career. I had left uh, BC, gone to University of Pennsylvania, so anyway, it wasn't until 
I ran into Stephen Constantine here at BC that he became interested in this profiling and he said, why don't we write that up? And that was the result was the killer by design. Now, this is amazing because people who have been watching, you know, television or whatever the last 20 years, they can't, it's hard to get your head around the fact that there was, there wasn't profiling. uh, So that how new it was. So when you entered into this, you, I'm sure as a scientist, if you will, you didn't want to have preconceived notions. However, were there, I don't know, three or four characteristics or data points that surprise you about a serial, uh, the characteristics of a serial killer? Well, I think what I was most surprised at, and, and the agents too, and Russell especially, because we wrote this one paper on the motivational model of serial killing and by profiling, and it was how the thought don't forget, thoughts drive behavior. And we were looking at the behavior that could be seen at the crime scene. So we had to move back to get the thoughts. And that's where the whole fantasy idea came. And we did look at the literature. And I think there are a couple of persons in the literature that had floated the idea about a fantasy. I guess it was called a fantasy Mm -hmm. that developed. And that's what got acted out in each of the murders. So that I think was a major surprise for me when I looked at how early that fantasy developed and you could almost get it back to childhood. Wow. That's how back, how far it went back. Yeah. What are the biggest common denominators of serial killers that you saw in your research? Besides the fantasy one. The other thing that the agents would do when they went to a crime scene is to separate it into this dichotomous, either organized or disorganized. Mm -hmm. And they would use that as their point of reference of how that crime scene appeared to them. And that later developed into, was it planned? How far was it planned? Or was it more impulsive? And out of the blue, the offender would, you know, kill the victim. So I think that was really, really important of, uh, of looking at a crime scene from organization of the structure, if you will, of the crime versus how unstructured it was and how impulsive. So that would be a second major point for me. Was there a sexual component to the majority or all of these? Well, that was the other thing is these were all cases. And in fact, the very first video they did was called No Apparent Motive, that law enforcement was going to these crime scenes and they weren't seeing anything sexual. But we felt there was. And sure enough, when you really got into analyzing the case, it was that they wouldn't necessarily leave any evidence, any forensic evidence. But what they did to the victim was very, very important and certainly had a sexual motive. And that's why we came up with sexual homicide. The cases we looked at were all sexual homicides where they had not been able to identify a motive prior to that. Yeah, let's move to uh, Henry Lewis Wallace, who we've been talking about on the podcast for a couple of episodes. When did you become involved in that case and who asked you to become involved or do you just uh, insert yourself? How did that work? Um, no, I was asked by the defense team. Okay. They knew about my work with victims and also Bob Ressler was asked to be on defense. So the both of us were what you would call defense witnesses. And so we went down and spent a lot of time with Henry Wallace interviewing him, trying to get information 
that would be helpful to explain to the jury about what and why this all, uh, all of these murders had happened. It was really curious to me that you actually, by interviewing him as well as his family members, you, you gained some sympathy for him. Yes. In other words, that was my job is to see what could we bring to the jury to understand this, because he was someone we would call high social competence. He was working. He was very personable. He had you know done good things in high school. He was in the Navy. And so why out of that he was married? All of this, he was what we would call high social competence. I mean, he why would he do all of this? And that was what we had to explain of how this developed. Where did it come from? The idea to murder. What were the mitigating factors? Right. I want to ask you about the way the media handled this this case and probably all the other ones up until then. You talk about presenting a two-dimensional serial killer. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, Henry himself um, and, and many of the other killers would describe that they're having this kind of two-sided life, which is um, characteristic that they present themselves in one way to the social world, and yet they have this very dark, very secret, um, lethal side of them where they are killing. It is uh, motivated by a sexual fantasy. Hmm. Let's talk about some of the mitigating factors that you you found for him killing these women? We actually identified them in the, in the book because that's what you have to do when you have a death penalty case. And there are many things that the jury agreed on. I think they agreed on close to 20 or 22 mitigating factors. Of course, the aggravating factors were very much against him. And all that we had in hope to do was to move it from death penalty to life in prison. Uh, that's usually the way the death, these death penalty cases go. And uh, it did not happen in, in that case because he did get the death penalty. But I think that we did as much as we could to explain to the jury what went on because uh, Henry Wallace had a very, uh, had an interesting life, as I've already said, that it just didn't make sense to people that he would be out killing. And he was killing people he knew. That was what was very different. Up until that time, most serial killers were killing and targeting strangers. But the Wallace case was just the opposite. And some of these were people he had worked with or knew from work. He had a, a, a fairly good job. He was a manager in a fast food type um, setting. And he, um, but the other thing that, was really a a bad thing for Henry was the uh, drugs. Drugs were, by the time he was into the two years of killing, he was pretty heavy into, I believe it was cocaine or crack cocaine. But he had begun the killing prior, right? And then he just started that <laughs> during. Yeah, um, I think it was 80, it was only a two-year period for the homicides. I think yeah. it was, uh, there were rapes before, and that's yeah. not uncommon that rape behavior starts in many of these uh, serial killers earlier. And for some reason, they then move and escalate into homicide. Also, one thing that I noticed you wrote about in your book was that he had characteristics of both organized and disorganized behavior. He did. Yeah. Right. 
And that had to do with the, I think, with the drugs. Okay. Uh, because remember, I think the last few days he he did one or two murders in the same day, mm-hmm. and it, it was just he was absolutely spinning out of control. And that's something that I did talk to Henry Walsh about: is uh, could they have caught you earlier? Would that if that had happened, he might not be sitting on death row. He certainly would be in prison. But um, if they had only been able to get him earlier or any of these serial killers earlier, that's what it's all about. That's what I'm trying to find out is from a prevention standpoint, mm-hmm. not only would it, it um, help the defendant, but it would also stop so many victims. And, and Rustler testified before you and he said if he wanted to be a serial killer, he was going about it all wrong, I believe is the, the quote. That's true. <laughs> that was that was Bob. That's right. We got so concerned at one point in looking at the forensic evidence that there was nothing tying it to to Wallace that I remember saying, do we have the right person? You know, could there be somebody else? And, and you know, he also volunteered two victims that the police didn't know about. Oh, so. And he he did a, a confession. He did a very long, involved confession. And he, so, he also gave a speech at the end, right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yes, he did. Yeah, he he did. He felt it was he felt very badly about what he had done, and was able to uh, impart that to the in the courtroom. And I, as I said, I think if they only had caught him earlier, he would not be on death row. Do you find it characteristic of the serial killers to kind of show some sort of remorse at the end as as Wallace did, or is that unusual? No, I think it's unusual what Wallace did. I think that he gave the confession so quickly. Now, don't forget it was a to a detective that he knew, um, so that that gave an added impetus, if you will. And I think he just wanted to confess to it. The detective gave him a piece of paper and said, just start writing down the victims. And he did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then talked each, about each one. I think that his confession, I don't know if it's on uh, public, you know, Record. is it for public, but I know that it was a very detailed, mm-hmm. unbelievably detailed account of what he had done. I had gotten him to draw some of the, um, all of the crimes so that I could better understand it and see if there was any pattern. And he did. So he was very helpful, certainly to me, in terms of giving me as much information as I, he could. What did he say about the infant he attempted to strangle to death? Yeah, uh, that was a little confusing because he never intended to to strangle. I mean, he, he thought about it, and I think that was part of the whole scenario but caught himself, luckily was able to catch himself so that he didn't um, do anything. But he was startled by some, I think, by there being a child involved, and that disrupted him. That's where I think he became, when you asked about becoming more disorganized, he became more disorganized, that there would actually be a, a, a child there. And then what would he do? He had not thought about that. Now, you say uh, in the book, uh, Killer by Design, which everybody's, it's an amazing book. You guys got to read it. Um, that this kind of propelled you to take on other cases. Is this your first big national case? Is that why that happened? And explain what happened after this case. Yes, that was my first major case of a, a capital case. And I've done about a half a dozen. They're very difficult, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. to do. Um, but I feel 
my and people say, well, how can you work with victims and then testify for the defense? And my answer is, is that it, I testify to the science, to the nursing science mm. that is there and that the jury has the right or the defendant or the victim has the right to be heard. Right. And then they make their decision so that they are not making it on, hopefully, on just emotion. Now, you also talk about becoming involved with or have a connection to the women in his life. I believe it was his mother you spent a lot of time with and talked to her and his main nurse, I guess, who he eventually married. Yes, Becky. Yes, so she was very helpful. And she really explained to me that that other side, if you will, of of uh, Henry Wallace. And it's true. She is was very, very helpful. She had cared very much for him, had developed quite a relationship with him, obviously, to the point that they did marry. And um, I, I think he, she was important in his, if you will, re- rehabilitation. I think she paid for him to have some counseling and to try to better understand what had happened, uh, how this had all developed. So she was very instrumental in the whole case. But also the sister was important to him. He had important women in his life. What he didn't have was a male, a strong male figure. Remember the father um, who had impregnated his mother twice had made the comment of... um, to the mother, I could understand one mistake, but not two. Jeez. Yeah. In the book, you said, what, 71% of these serial killers have a distant relationship with their father. And- yeah, it seemed as though if they didn't have a father initially, around adolescence is when the father or the parents separated. And that's a critical time for young boys to not have a strong male figure that they could go to. And I think that... Uh, Henry always wanted to meet his father, and I think there was one time when supposedly the father was supposed to come by and, of course, didn't. So he was very disappointed by that, and that set him, if you want to look at it as an impact factor of um, trying to understand what was wrong with him, that even his father wouldn't acknowledge him. And Burgess, this has been one of my favorite 25 minutes or whatever it's been. Yes. It's great. I appreciate great. you taking time. I know you're very busy, so this is awesome. A Killer by Design, Murderers, Mind Hunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind is one of her many books. And thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoy doing it. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I'm so flattered she came on. I know. Mind Hunters, I'd loved the show, and uh, I've listened to the book over the last few days, and I listened. Yeah, I didn't read. I have the Audible. I, I got Audible, too, because I was too busy. That way I can multitask, clean my house, cool. and listen at the same time. As we mentioned at the beginning, the Charlotte Strangler or the Taco Bell Strangler, the subject came up because of the Wicked South podcast that we do with Michael DeWitt. So we want you to check out the Wicked South podcast when you get a chance, or the Wicked South podcast Facebook, or our Impact of Influence Facebook, and uh, hopefully you'll leave us some comments and rate and share the episode. That always uh, helps us out and appreciate that, and we will talk soon, friend.
It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh, no. Oh, yes. But fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.